This is case 61 from the Hekigan Roku. Feng Shui is one atom of dust. The introduction. To set up the banner of the teaching and establish its fundamental message is a matter for a genuine master of the school. To judge dragons and snakes, distinguish the initiate from the naive, one must be an accomplished teacher. As for discussing killing and giving life on the edge of a sword, discerning what is appropriate for the moment with the staff, this I leave aside for now. Just tell me in one phrase, how will you assess the matter of occupying the heartland single-heartedly? To test, I cite this case, the main case. Feng Zhui, while giving a talk, said, If you set up a single atom of dust, the nation flourishes and the peasants frown. If you do not set up a single atom of dust, the nation perishes and the peasants are at ease. Zuetu raised his staff and said, are there any patch-robed monks who will live together and die together? The verse. The old peasants may not unfurl their brows, but for now I hope that the nation establishes a sturdy foundation. Crafty ministers, valiant generals, where are they now? 10,000 miles pure wind, only I know. So, last Saturday, last weekend actually, there was a Sishin, a couple of you were there, in New York at uh, Shoboji. And Yogan and I uh, participated for one day. And as I was sitting through Zazen quietly, one period after another, I was able to sink deeply into the the bliss of the silence, being surrounded by others who do the same. I was reminded of the time where, when I began to, uh, or started to practice with a group in a more traditional way, more formal way, some years ago, and I remember being there and really just wanting to practice, just enjoying and appreciating the silence, the stillness, the opportunity to take time and observe the, the chaos, the madness. Right? We, all, uh, we all encounter. And in that time, all I wanted is just that. Didn't have any aspirations to 
become anything or to ordain or to have any titles or it was not needed. It is not needed. But then my teacher had other ideas. And so a path, so to speak, was established. A curriculum was pointed at. And it felt right to follow, so here I am. And yet, all along, before, during, after, and eternally, actually, what we practice is beyond all that. What we encounter, what we experience, or what the practice is about, has always been beyond titles, ranks, rows, positions, what we follow, what we adhere to. Yet it's needed. Not that the practice needs it. It's needed as upaya. So there are no rules, yet we have to have rules. We have to have ranks. And we do it as a recognition that or recognition of what we are working with. The tyranny of our resistance or the insistence maybe that I have another way, I have a better way and I'm going to get through this and as long as my resistance is strong enough it'll actually change something. That's the tyranny we work with, and that's and that needs stable guidance. It needs discipline right? in order to get through, in order to muster up the, the courage and the spiritual stamina to stick with it to give it a structure. How do we work with a structure knowing that it's not needed? How do we know when we dismiss it because of the voice of the resistance or when we dismiss it while being in it and embrace it? How do we know the difference? How do we know what's moving us? The, the point of practice is to illuminate things as they are, the way as it is, not as we think it is. So we, in a way, we, we build constructs in order to get out of our own constructs but not to climb into that construct and then create a home out of it. 
We build a construct to shatter constructs, all constructs. And again, what kind of a construct is that? You know, in the words of Dogen, he said, the way is basically perfect and all-pervading. How could it be contingent upon practice and realization? Or how could it be dependent on what we create? The Dharma vehicle is free and untrammeled. What need is there for concentrated effort? Which is what we do, right? Indeed, the whole body is far beyond the world's dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? It is never apart from one right where one is. Right? So, just that statement alone shatters the idea of a goal. Here it is. But what am I doing? Why am I practicing? Where am I going? What will I become? Then he says, what is the use of going off here and there to practice? So what's the use of coming here? Going to Sishin, Zazenka. Essentially, the Dharma does not need monasteries or practice temples, centers. We don't need to make the effort, put so much energy and time into this, since it's always been this way, right? We have always been perfect. We have always been what we are looking for. But, yet, as Dogen continues, if there is the slightest discrepancy, the way is as distant as heaven from earth. If the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. And I think it's that second part of this statement that keeps us in practice, if we're willing to be honest. If we are willing to look at what is moving me, how honest am I with what I'm thinking, with what I'm saying, with the way I'm moving? What is it representing? Is it representing the Dharma? My thoughts, words, actions. Are they representing the Dharma? as they arise, or do they represent what the Dharma sheds light on? So, there is a path. And constructs are created. But how do we work with a construct? This is really the, I think for us, the most important part of knowing how to practice correctly. Because, oh, let's put it this, what happens when we forget that any construct 
is essentially built on the level ground. What happens when we drift away from the essential truth off the level ground and lose sight of our original face? What happens when our attention is captured by what we ourselves create? As we drift away from the source, we actually destabilize or mess with the trust in it. And then begin to develop trust in what the eye can see what the ear can hear, the nose can smell. And then, of course, in what the mind produces as a result of what the eye can see, what the ear can hear, what the nose can smell. There's no not trusting. There's always trusting. There's always obeying. What do we obey? Right? So we, we don't know how to return to the source and verify it, verify who we are through experiences. We're left with putting our trust in some construct that we ourselves create. And whether, whether we create it before we step into practice or we create it after being involved in formal practice, it really doesn't matter. It's all made up. Everything we think is creation, and fantasy in a way. It comes, sticks around for a while, and disappears. What is it if not made up fantasy? Which absolutely feels very real and very convincing. And often it's terrifying to not follow it. Right? To, to, to actually, and before we can fully trust, there is a period of, and the period can last a long time, of stepping on something that is, that does not feel like it can support us. Right? To, in Aikido, it's thought about that, we worked on it yesterday, right? Uh, when we learn how to roll correctly, front rolls, right? So, we have to drop the upper part of the body, but the, the lower part, one leg has to come up in the air. Otherwise, we just, I want to touch the ground before I'm willing to lift the back leg. I want to make sure that there is something solid underneath me. But this is actually asking, in order to really study that, to learn how to roll correctly, we have to venture into losing balance. Because if we don't lose balance, then there's no roll, there's no front roll, there's no fall. Right? We cannot learn how to fall unless we experience loss of balance. 
Because then the fall will not be real. Right? It'll be just sitting down. So to, to lift the other leg, the back leg, before the, the hand touches the ground, the front hand touches the ground, in that, in that moment or second, there is a sense of being unstable, as if the rug is being pulled underneath, from underneath you. And then this is a very important point to, to ask, what do I trust? At the moment of loss of balance, and the moment of not having any structure to rely on, any known structure anyway, what's left? What do I put my trust in? You know, when we, when we are so obsessed with trusting everything we think, everything we hear, everything we smell, everything we touch, that we become, of course, highly susceptible to advertisement, right? which, of course, moves the economy. And Keiji can tell us a lot about that because that's his <laughs> line of work. right? But that's what we work with. We work with, essentially, we work with fear, I think, in advertisement. Not we, but I think advertisement works with Fear and addressing, you know, fear in a way that, okay, take this for a while. It's going to calm you down for a little bit. Buy this product. You're going to feel good. And you do feel good for a little while. And then there's a new product or something else. May even make you feel better. So why don't you buy that? But, but so much of, of, of what we're involved in everyday life in our society is based on that. So, you know, we say that the practice is radical, but practice goes to the heart of what moves us. It messes with everything that we create, everything that has been created, some by us, some by what we have inherited. But all this can happen if... if the eye is closed. The eye on the forehead is closed. Because there's got to be certain, certain spiritual, certain level of spiritual blindness in order to follow this. As the eye begins to open, we actually begin to question, is it really what I need? Is it real to feel solid but is it? Is it not falling apart? Can it really support me? Does it do what I think it's doing? Right? Until and unless we verify through practice who we are, we have no choice but to trust what we've been told in our childhood or believe what our culture is telling us to believe. And it starts actually very young. Some of it, with some of us, maybe through messages that were very explicit, some very subtle. And I think other way, 
most of us have to deal with some level of insecurity that arises out of not knowing who we really are. It arises out of trusting what we've been told or what we are being told now. We have a student, I have a student in the kids program who is it's about 12. And she's pretty good, actually, at Aikido, and it's been here for a while. And, and uh, when she makes a mistake in practice, her first, the first words that come out of her mouth is, I'm so stupid. And it is so automatic. It's totally a knee-jerk reaction. I'm so stupid. She says it very fast. Of course, I say, no, you're not. Let's focus on what you need to do. Let's figure it out and move on. But next time it happens, the words come out again. And then, and this is 12-year-old. Think about us not being 12 years old. Hearing something over and over and over again, not knowing what else to rely on, how could we not trust that to be true? Of course I'm so stupid. Look, I just messed up. I just made a mistake. And it's a loop. It actually, and it's designed to be something that fits itself. Because life is going to verify exactly that. As long as we look for ourselves in what we do, in what other people say, in what we think about what we do, or maybe as long as we look for ourselves, period. Right? And that becomes our practice. It, it is a practice because she does it over and over and over and over again. Right, And anything we do over and over again is practice. How we verify insecurities can be also daily practice. You know, someone once asked the Buddha, why am I still doing this? Why do I still get trapped in the same mud over and over again? Why am I doing it to myself although I follow the teaching and practice diligently? Why? And the Buddha simply said, because you still believe it to be true. It's a very powerful statement because you still believe it to be true. Just think about that. Right? I believe this to be true, so I am doing this. So I'm following it. So I have defined myself and I keep defining myself based on that assumption. I trust it. Now that's both the disease and the cure. Right? That's the medicine and the poison. Both. Because if, what if I don't believe it, right? 
What happens if I stop believing it to be true? What happens when I allow myself to lose stability or to be comfortable with being uncomfortable? Then, of course, I mess with what I think is true. I mess with what I think is supporting me. And then I venture out to something else. I venture out of the structure into no structure. Out of knowing into not knowing. Out of me into no me, no self. No other. No path. Because you still believe it to be true. Now, he doesn't mean that we don't encounter self-destructive thoughts or self-loathing thoughts, right? You know, of course, we all do. And we all do. I, I don't, I've never heard of anybody or spoke with anybody who doesn't experience this to some degree. So it's not about waiting until it subsides. It's about whether or not I believe it to be true, whether or not I believe it to represent what's really going on. It's the only place where there is freedom. We don't have freedom from karma in a way that we just don't experience it anymore. The freedom from karma has to do with turning towards, embracing, recognizing, making peace with the fact that, yeah, that happened. I was told all these things that maybe echo in my mind. There is fear that results out of that. But now what? Now what? Is it, do I see the, the fork on the road? Do I see that there is another way to meet it, to, to work with it? Am I willing to venture out? And the way we experience, the way we encounter this, right? It, it's, it's very, uh, it's complex. It's not so simple to say, well, I'm just going to ignore it or I'm just going to not believe it or believe in it because it's, it's the way we think, it's the way we move, it's the way we speak, it's, the, it's what we encounter on a daily basis. It's what makes the world move. It makes the economy move. What countries are built on. And the Buddha spoke about what he called the eight, eight worldly conditions that essentially move the wheel of samsara. It's amazing to see how timeless and relevant they are even to us so many years later. And then how quickly we build a construct of a self through these conditions. 
So the eight conditions, they are gain versus, now they are paired actually, so four pairs. Gain versus loss. Pleasure versus pain. Recognition versus insignificance. And praise versus blame. Right? We want to gain and we try to avoid loss. We want pleasure. Try to avoid pain. We want recognition, trying to avoid insignif feeling insignificant. And we want to be praised and we try to avoid being criticized or blamed. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It's what we all deal with. But, but look at it. Look at even logically speaking. Look at it, right? Each one of these conditions, each one of them arises because of its opposite. If it, if it did not have an opposite, then what would it be? It gets its power. Its, its power arises out of its like magnets in a way. Right? One pushes the other. You take one, what are you left with? You remove one of them. What is the other about? How do we define something without its opposite? How do we even know what to call it? Or how to meet it? Because each one stands in comparison to the other side, which means that there is no gain without loss, pleasure without pain. In other words, gain already contains loss in it. Whether it comes as fear of losing or an understanding that sooner or later everything we gain is going to be lost. And of course, the same truth works with the other three pairs. And if we understand that one contains the other, then we can also see that one can cancel the other out. It's not a philosophy class, so please don't go there. <laughs> it's not the point. But, but the point is, how do, how do we meet it? How do we... So we feel, for example, insignificant or stupid. Right? We feel it. But what happens when this feeling is not identified with, not contained in any way? It's just a feeling. And it's not compared to I want to be significant. I want others to recognize me. And the other way too, what happens if you gain? Fine. You gain whatever it is you gain. If it's just that, then there's no fear of losing. And there's no comparison or comparisons to others who did not or to you before and after. It's just that. And of course, it opens it up to what do I do with what I gain? If, it's not, if, the, if it does not define me, I can easily share it with everybody. 
Because I don't need it. I don't need to be praised. Somebody says something nice, thank you. Thank you. Not needed, but thank you. Somebody cuts you off. Somebody belittles you, criticizes you. Thank you. I don't need that. But what I may need is to listen to what just was said, right? And maybe I can learn something from that. Maybe I can study something, improve something, an ability. It's always something to learn, but not something to identify with. It's just that when it arises, when one of those conditions arise, or we find ourselves stuck in one of those conditions, and stuck is even in gain, it's stuck. But we find ourselves stuck, then we can look at it and ask, what's happening here? Can I just see it and move on from it, or move with it, rather than pitch a tent? Or build a house. Also, if, if, if gain is not viewed as the opposite of loss and you don't see yourself as the one who gained, then there's no construct of, you don't create a construct of having and a, another construct of losing. That's made up and that's made up. And when we don't do that, there's no fear, right? There's no fear born out of not having. It's just, it's only an experience of ebb and flow. There is that. There is ebb and flow. And there's no ebb without flow. There's no this without that. It's just one step at a time, one foot in front of the other. Now, of course, none of it is saying that we should check out and not work with it, right? You work towards saving, you work towards a promotion, you get, a, you get more money, you gain something, you lose a job, there is, we call it, I lost my job, right? Fine. Just don't think that anything was lost in losing your job. Right? So you get a title. They call you a teacher. Fine. Well, you do what you have to do. Just don't think that there is such thing called teacher. It's just that we have to function this way. But we have to know how to function skillfully this way. And to function skillfully is to not make anything out of anything. So, in this koan, Feng Zhui says, if you set up a single atom of dust, the nation flourishes and the peasants frown. Now this is also known as the gate of setting up differences. When all things are seen as different, there is you and there is I. 
there is north, there is south, before and after, gain and loss, opinions to agree or disagree with, right? There is. Here is the mess, right, right there. Our countries, borders, different positions, ranks, so on. So a world of relativity is created, is born. And the nation flourishes, because that's what makes it move. But for us as practitioners, right, this is an important recognition from which we must go further. We have to investigate that. We have to look at what is all this standing on, what is supporting the mess. Without, without getting into whether it's a good mess or a bad mess, it's a mess. Sometimes it's good. And in the Gendra Koan, Dogen describes this stage as when all dharmas are the Buddha Dharma, there is delusion and realization, practice, life and death, Buddhas and living beings. So that gives rise to delusion, realization, practice, life and death, Buddhas and living beings. Snakes and dragons. Then Feng Shui says, if you do not set up a single atom of dust, the nation perishes and the peasants are at ease. Now this is known, also known as the gate of sweeping away differences. So diving deeply into the world of Mu. Recognizing, but gut level recognition. Recognizing ground level. Opening the eye on the forehead. Seeing equality and being blind to differentiation. So, no you and I, no north and south, no before and after, no gain and loss, no opinions to agree with or disagree with, no countries, borders, no ranks, no eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. <coughs> No leaves, roots, branches. And the nation perishes because all things are recognized as one and the same. Actually, everything perishes. Because it has never been there to begin with. Now, Dogen describes this stage as when the 10,000 dharmas are without a fixed self. There is no delusion and no realization, no Buddhas and no living beings, no birth and no death. As he said, body and mind drop away, or a state of absolute samadhi, as Zekida called it. Now, this koan also appears in the Shoyoloku collection and there are footnotes that I think help shed light on each of Feng Shui's statements. Under the line, if you set up a single atom of dust, the nation flourishes, it says, when you find this, it's originally there. It's originally there. Now under the second line, if you do not set up a single atom of dust, the nation perishes, it says, when you lose this, it's originally non-existent. So it's originally there and it's originally non-existent. 
but you encounter it first and then you lose it and then you realize that nothing was lost because nothing was there. We encounter formation as it is originally there. And then we encounter disintegration as originally non-existence. So what is left? After all this, what is left? What's the third stage? Here's how Dogen describes it. Since the Buddha way by nature goes beyond the dichotomy of abundance and deficiency, beyond gain and loss, there is a rising and perishing, delusion and realization, living beings and Buddhas. Because it goes beyond you and I, there is you and I. Because it goes beyond ranks and positions, there are ranks and positions. That's where it gets, it can get difficult because if we go beyond, why are we going back? But are we going back? And is going beyond leaving anything behind? Right? Where are we going and what is left behind? If it's not there to begin with, how do you leave it behind? And if it's not there to begin with, how do you let it go? And again, let's not make a philosophy out of it because this, all this has to do with how do we understand it as practice, not as interesting subject to study? Right? Setting up differences is right. And clearing away differences is right. But both need to be transcended before we can function freely in the mud. You may remember Shishuang's words from a few weeks ago, from a con a few weeks ago I brought up. Shishuang said, we just impartially sit in the mud, right? Because how we sit in the mud, how do we work with gain and loss? How do we work with setting up and not setting up? Does it mean to be impartial? Zretu, who was the compiler of this Quran collection, the Ekiganoku, added the last line, to the Quran later on. It was his comment on that. But in the body of the Quran, it appears as if it is in the Quran. So he raised his staff and said, Are there any patch robbed monks who will live together and die together? And that's the third part of this. Right? To set up, to not set up. And then what? Right? And he raises his staff to show that we're all in this together. Right? And what else would he raise? Well, he could have raised this, which is fine too. So I'll take a seat. But you could, you could raise anything 
Because anything is originally non-existent. So you raise this staff because that's what they had as teachers. One of the things they owned. You raised it to show we're all this way. But do we realize it all? Do we live in a constant, with a constant frown like the old peasants? Do we have to frown? In a different translation, it says that when a single grain of dust is not raised, the old peasants sing. Right? So how does this song sound like and where is it needed? Because this is what matters. How do we understand it and how do we, how do we sing it? How do we share this song? And in the full version of this koan, Feng Shui says, if you set up a single atom of dust, the nation flourishes and the peasants frown. If you do not set up a single atom of dust, the nation perishes and the peasants are at ease. And then he kept, he kept talking and he says, if you can clearly understand here, you have no separate pot. You have no separate pot. It's all this old monk, me, he says, referring to himself. I am just you, and you, you and I can enlighten everyone in the world. You and I can enlighten everyone in the world. And then he says, and also, you and I can delude everyone in the world. Do you want to know you, he said. And then he slapped his left side. And he asked, do you want to know me? Slapping the right side, here it is. Here is you, here is me. Now how does this body move, is the question. Can it move gracefully? Can it serve as a way of being? That's the question. How oh, we get caught up the right side, the left side, the right toe, the the hair, the ear, the nose. Then we end up wasting precious lives, precious moments of life on trying to figure out who is who and what is what. And the opportunities end in an instant for all of us. You know, I think I mentioned last month we talked about uh, one of our friends from Aikido who him and his uh, new wife crossed the street and got hit by a car. She died immediately and he's still in a coma. That was uh, December 1st, so more than a month and a half later. Myog and I went to visit him in the hospital. And there is some movement of the arm and the eyes open and closed, but you know, we... we we stood there with him, we held his hand, and it makes you see, it makes you realize how precious, how vulnerable, how 
important it is to recognize that the opportunities are very quickly lost and the opportunity to awaken more than anything lost and that's a shame if we don't realize it so to see somebody to see a friend in this state and to see that you know this vibrancy ends in an instant makes you realize makes you wonder am i am i using this correctly this body those senses am i using them correctly do I even know how to use it? You know, the introduction to this koan is asking you to leave everything aside for the moment. Everything. Really everything. You think everything. You believe everything. You don't believe. And to express in one phrase, how will you assess the matter of occupying the heartland single-heartedly? And we all, keep, we all occupy the heartland. How do we bring it to life right and Huineng described the lifeblood of zen in, in the following words he said in our teaching no thought is the principle no form is the foundation and no abode is the basis right so no thought no form no abode now in raising an atom of dust and in not raising an atom of dust our primary task is to become a living embodiment of no thought, no form, and no abode. It's the only important task. No form, no thought, and no abode. Now go live that. <laughs>